Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We usually think of wild animals as being remote from us, far away in nature. But as we find out, that view is often wrong. I was up in New Hampshire recently visiting a friend, and he's got bears coming into his backyard a couple of times a week. And sure enough, we were hiking not far from his house, and we saw a bear ambling up the trail in front of us. I wasn't quite sure whether to have that be an exciting, thrilling experience or one that was kind of scary. And, and Jim, where I live on the Connecticut coast, we just got an alert in our neighborhood to keep our dogs in the house because there have been packs of coyotes roaming around and they could be trouble. The line between our civilized lives and wild, unpredictable nature seems to have gotten a little thinner lately. Today's episode, When Nature Hits Back, with science writer Barry Roach. So I'm always policing what I'm writing, thinking, you know, is, is there some way to make this fresh, funny, um, weird? Is there, is there some way, some spice I can add here to keep the person from putting the book down or throwing it across the room? Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix it? it? How do we fix it? Mary Roach is one of my favorite science writers. She writes funny, engaging books on topics you might think would creep people out a little bit, like what happens to dead bodies or things that are still a little taboo, like her book Bonk on human sexuality. Mary returns to How Do We Fix It for a second visit. The last time we spoke with her was about Grunt, a book about the science of humans at war. Continuing her run of books with punchy one-word titles, Mary Roach's latest is called Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. It's all about what happens when humans and nature come into conflict. Mary joins us from the San Francisco Bay Area in California. Welcome back to How Do We Fix It? Thank you. Lovely to be back. In pre-modern times, people were afraid of being attacked by animals for good reason. But over the past century or so, most of us who live in cities or suburbs assume that wild animals are somewhere out there in nature, not in our backyards, and, and not really an immediate problem for us. Is that changing? Are these encounters becoming more common? 
Yeah, for two reasons. One, we're moving, we are expanding. We as a species, urban areas are pushing out into terrain that didn't used to have any humans. So we're moving into their terrain and they're they're expanding. The populations of, of these animals are doing well. Up through the 70s, there were bounties on these large animals. They were killed as you know varmints, as threats to agriculture or to livestock. Did a pretty good job wiping out large numbers of carnivores in particular, and also bears, which are omnivores. So the populations are recovering, and that's a good thing, but they're recovering to a point where people are starting to see them more. They're getting all up in people's business, and some people don't like that, and hello, human-wildlife conflict. In researching your book, Mary, you got to take a trip to Aspen, Colorado, but instead of skiing or hiking, you found yourself exploring back alleys in the middle of the night. Tell us what you were doing there. Yeah, it was about 3.30 a.m. Aspen has a lot of restaurants, a lot of tourists. So there's this sort of restaurant row and the alley behind it, which doesn't see a lot of tourists, uh, is where all the dumpsters are. And supposedly those are all bear resistant uh, and the, that's supposed to solve the problem. And uh, But so I was there with a bear human conflict researcher named Stuart Breck. I made him set his alarm for 3 a.m. so we could go to the back alley and see if we could see a crime in action. <laughs> see one of the bears doing its thing, breaking into a dumpster. And uh, yeah, I was, you know, expecting probably we'd get up at 3 a.m. and see nothing because that's how this crap goes, I found with this book. <laughs> um, so, but in fact, uh, we got there and we drove past the turn off into the alley and there was a bag, white bag split open, garbage spread everywhere, the scene of the crime. So we got out and within three minutes, I would say, one of the bears came back to uh, keep going through, because this is good stuff. I mean, this is burrata and, and sustainably farmed <laughs> salmon and, and uh, you know, venison chops. And th this is good eating here in this uh, bag of garbage. So the bear was highly motivated to come back. In fact, two bears. And the bears aren't even that afraid of, of the humans coming around. That's right. They've learned two things. One, this is some good eating back here in this alley. And number two, these humans, uh, they just sort of stand around and look at us. They don't seem to be harming us. So let's not worry about them and get back to the food. So yeah, they and they looked they looked up when they saw us. They kind of, hmm, hmm, what's that? Doesn't seem to be a threat. Went back to the food. But there are examples of bears attacking people. Are those cases on the rise in the U.S.? This year, uh, we've had three bear attacks, fatal bear attacks, which is high. Um, uh, if you look back over the you know, from 2010 till now, uh, it go it fluctuates from zero to three per year. It's an average of two. I'd say you can't really say at this point there's a trend in the number of fatal attacks. Um, the 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 drought is is bringing more animals out of the woods. So it's kind of it's kind of hard to call it. Um, are we seeing you know more? more attacks. And mountain lions, it's so, so rare uh, that somebody is 
killed by a mountain lion. I mean, you'll, like a whole decade will go by where no one is killed in this country by a mountain lion. We're just not on their menu, first of all. And second of all, they're, they're, they're very stealthy. You know, they, they tend to be uh, caught on doorbell cameras these days. Uh, you, so, so they've been sneaking around in the middle of the night, grabbing chickens and cats and things all along. But lately we're, we are more, we in the suburbs, I'm, I'm more in, in the LA area, the people are, are catching them on, on their nest cameras. And so there, it, that contributes to this sense that suddenly they're everywhere. So when nature breaks the law, which is the subtitle of your book, it's, that's an intriguing thought. Um, what drew you to the subject? Why are you interested in, in these wildlife human encounters? One thing that really uh, caught my attention was this, I stumbled onto this 1906 book called uh, Criminal Prosecution and Capital Punishment of Animals. Uh, and it detailed dozens of cases from the 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, in which animals that had broken our laws were actually put on trial uh, and and sometimes hung or put in prison. And I was like, what? Really? That doesn't seem like a good way to deal with it. The case that I mentioned in the book was like 1659, Lombardy province in Italy, caterpillars were going in and uh, eating some of the crops as, as they'll do. And so there were summons posted on trees in the region telling the caterpillars that they were to appear in court on this particular date, at which point they would be assigned legal representation. And it wasn't a joke. It was actually done. And uh, of course, by the time the date came around, um, no caterpillars showed up. They pupated. So they they were long gone. And, any, and everything turned out okay because they stopped raiding the crops because they'd become butterflies or moths or whatever <laughs> the hell they were. Um, but what, but it, it was I, I just remember thinking, well, obviously, the legal system is not going to provide the answer here. What do we do? What is a, I mean, what does science do about that? I'm always looking for some weird branch of science to roll around in and check out and, and see what's there. So that was that was part of it. You also traveled to the foothills of the Himalayas in India where leopard attacks are a big problem. This kind of human-animal conflict can have really tragic consequences. It sounds pretty scary. It is scary there. There are mountainous farming communities that have seen a lot of out-migration. So there, there are a lot of the men who were tending the fields, mostly men, are leaving, going into the cities to find work. And so there's a lot of communities that have been kind of abandoned or they're uh, fewer, far fewer people. So the terrain is kind of rewilded. There's still people living there, um, but there's lots of places for leopards to hunt and to, they like to have cover when they hunt. So uh, a lot of children, 41% of the attacks are on, on children under 10. Uh, and it, 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 and there's a lot of times they don't have a school bus. So they're walking home at dusk. That's a dangerous time. Leopards are out hunting, um, so it it is quite a problem for sure. It's um, um, hard to imagine, you know, that being attacked. I mean, we don't have that issue here with our big cats. 
Right now, with the COVID pandemic, the most frightening threats from wildlife come with disease. COVID-19 originated with bats in China, possibly from a wildlife market or a lab. How does this affect our thinking about the relationship between animals and humans? Well, yeah, uh, anytime you think about other species posing a threat to us, uh, I immediately go to uh, bacteria and viruses. You know, to me, it's it's almost hilarious the amount of uh, fretting and, and concern and media coverage that goes toward the occasional um, large mammal attack when literally hundreds of thousands of people are, are harmed slash killed by uh, microorganisms. And again, it's a, a matter of our, our terrain overlapping with their terrain. And so you have zoonoses, these uh, illnesses that were uh, originally just in that one species, and now you're, you're finding out that it can jump. And so do you think there'll be more of this? Yeah, I do. I'm not a zoonosis person, but yes, you know, almost every year there's some uh, new flu or, you know, H1N1. There's always something in the news, uh, some new illness that we're all coping with, coming down with. I love when the CDC tries to trace it back there. They were looking, you know, in the case of, I guess it was H1N1, they're looking for chicken zero. The, yeah, the, where like tracing it back to the original, you know, chicken to human transmission. I just thought that would be a good book title, Chicken Zero. <laughs> We've been talking about animals being a threat to us, but humans are generally a much bigger threat to animals. I mean, I don't know how many tens of millions of animals are killed by cars every year. And you spent some time with a group that's trying to reduce the number of collisions, specifically between cars and big animals like deer. What are they working on? Sure. I, I spent some time with uh, um, Travis DeVault, who's a researcher with the National Wildlife Research Center. He's been working on, it's a, it's a bar that you attach to the front of the vehicle that illuminates the front of the vehicle so that any animal, deer in particular, we were looking at then, uh, would be able to see, oh, this is a large vehicle coming at me. Because at night, at, or at dusk, when, when most of the uh, impacts happen, all the all the animal is seeing is these two pinpoints of light, and it just stands there going, "Huh, it's funny, pinpoints of light, huh?" You know, and then it's harder to tell this thing is coming closer to you, and so that's the whole deer in the headlights problem. They're standing, looking, not realizing those little dots of light are a thing coming closer, and uh, so by light, by having this bar of uh, this um, this lighting that would light up the front, the grill, essentially, of the truck, you tell the animal, time to get out of the way, large thing coming at you. These, these creatures haven't evolved. Uh, the, the processors haven't evolved to calculate, you know, a, a, a car on a freeway. Um, they're, so they're off. They're, they get their estimates um, wrong. They're, they're, the vehicle hits them because they don't realize it's coming that fast. You did a ton of, of reporting, a lot of traveling for Fuzz, for the book. What's the weirdest or funniest 
example you can cite of a of a <laughs> an illegal animal encounter with a human uh, there was a, a a bizarre instance of gull vandalism at the Vatican the Vatican every Easter does this amazing huge massive elaborate floral display uh, in St Peter's Square uh, where the Pope comes out and says mass on Easter morning, takes them hours to set it up the night before. And they finish around, you know, seven or eight o'clock at night. And then they come back in the morning in this case, and the daffodils are knocked over. The, the roses are pulled out and strewn around. Like there was some diva ballerina's last performance. It was this just mayhem. And it was these gulls. So that was that was an, an interesting and bizarre one. And I went to the Vatican the day before and the day of Easter. They had hired a man who invented a kind of a laser scarecrow, which is it's kind of like disco lights, only just green. And it sort of spins around and it's got these, you know, the laser beam is hitting all the flowers, et cetera. And because the, the, some birds uh, perceive a laser beam as kind of a, a stick coming at them, and they call this the stick effect. <laughs> this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Mary Roach, author of Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. More coming up. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So the basic theme of your book is what happens when the needs of animals or nature and the needs of humans come into conflict. What are some of the things we can do to reduce the risk to both? I mean, even starting in our own backyard, say a friend of mine, you're from New Hampshire. I was up there the other day. My buddy has bears in his backyard a couple times a week. What can we do about that? Well, if bears aren't causing any problems, uh, we can enjoy it. <laughs> That's the best thing. I've got raccoons, possums, and skunks that regularly go back and forth in our yard. And I like to put out a wildlife camera and just take photographs of them because they're pretty cool. It becomes a problem when the creature has realized that you've got a nice place to, to nest and raise young, say under your deck or in your attic. Um, that's a problem. And in that case, you can practice exclusion. It's called exclusion. And that's uh, figuring out 
how they're getting in and blocking that access point. Um, if they're already in there, that's a little trickier. You, there are people who wildlife control operators that are that use humane methods. Like say you have a family of squirrels in your attic, then you're concerned about them chewing through the wiring, which is a concern. Uh, they'll they'll install a one-way door so that the animals can get out, uh, but not back in. Because if you if you were to close it off. When part, let's say the young are in there and the mother is out foraging for food and you then seal it, then you've trapped the babies in there and the, the adult outside. And, and that's not very humane. But there are people who are good at that. They're humane wildlife control operators. And um, there's some good information. Uh, the Humane Society of the United States has so, some good information about how to find one of those people, because sometimes they use, they'll use the word humane, but they're not really doing anything humane. So those are some of the things that you can try to do to minimize the hassle that they may be causing. Mary, you've made a career writing about sometimes difficult, often yucky topics in an upbeat, entertaining way. Uh, your books are also well-reported. They're scientifically accurate. What's your secret sauce? Why do you think people really enjoy reading your books? Beats the crap out of me. I don't, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm very happy about it. It's such an earnest question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, You know what it is? I think I'm very insecure and I have a lot of self-loathing. So I'm writing constantly with this imaginary reader looking over my shoulder going, well, that's not very interesting. So I'm always policing what I'm writing, thinking, you know, is, is there some way to make this fresh, funny, um, weird? Is there, is there some way, some spice I can add here to keep the person from putting the book down or throwing it across the room? I think I just live with that internal critic. I'm writing and researching to entertain myself. I'm going to the Vatican because why wouldn't you go to the Vatican? I don't need to have gull vandalism in the book. It's not critical that I report on gulls and lasers, but I don't know, the Vatican on Easter Sunday? How, that's, a, that's a good setting. Got to have that in. Got to go to Rome. <laughs> So, you know, speaking as the uh, former editor of a, of a mainstream science magazine, I have to say that I'm, I'm really often appalled by the poor quality of scientific reporting in, the, especially the news media, especially when you have reporters who aren't primarily science reporters. Why is it so hard for journalists to get science right? I find a lot of bad science reporting, not in the science press so much as just the just the general press, just a lot of headlines that are coming from preclinical trials, say, where it's been tested on a bunch of cells, <laughs> or it's just, we're not to the point where this is headline news about a breakthrough discovery. I think it comes from an inability to properly judge a study. How many, how big was the population, the subject population? How well was it controlled? What's this journal? Do they have a good, what is it? The influence factor? The, what is that called? What you're talking about is how often the articles are cited by other, yeah. uh, other peer reviewed journals. 
Right, right. There, there are ways to to um, critically assess this piece of information, and and a press release from the company is not the way to do that. As you mentioned, it's you know, it's people who don't have a background in science reporting who are nonetheless reporting science, and and that appalls me. In last week's episode of How Do We Fix It? On the 9-11 attacks, we talked about conspiracy theories. There's a great deal of information about scientific matters in particular. Recent examples include the falsehoods about COVID vaccines. Why do you think that is? Well, I think social social media and the Internet have, have provided us a, a platform to reach a much larger audience. Um, so if you're saying something that has an inherent appeal, an intuitive appeal, uh, you put it out there and people pick it up and they retweet it or they repost it and it finds its way out to a far broader audience. And people see and believe what they want to believe and um, not necessarily what's accurate or what's best researched. So I kind of have to blame the internet and social media. Richard, I both love your working title for this book, um, Animal, Vegetable, Criminal, right? Wasn't that? Yes. Was that in, and uh, I think that's the title being used in the UK, but why did you change it for the US? Oh, God, it's such a sad story. Okay. Yes, Animal, <laughs> Vegetable, Criminal. I basically wrote a book around a title here. I loved that title so much. <laughs> that's why there's a chapter on killer trees because we had to add some vegetable matter. Just for listeners, this was a chapter on what they do about very tall trees that might at some point topple over and kill some tourists in a particular uh, in a particular forest preserve, right? Yes, they're called, and this is a technical term, danger trees. Danger trees. <laughs> so yeah, animal, vegetable, criminal. Everybody loved that title. You know, it's a play on animal, vegetable, mineral. It's, it's so great. Okay, here's what happens. Uh, early part of this year, in the UK, apparently Mark Bittman isn't such a threat because they kept it animal, vegetable, criminal. But, you know, fuzz, fuzz as in police, fuzz as in fuzzy animal. I get it, but I'm not sure all young people uh, know that fuzz is slang for police. So, uh, you know, there may be some people scratching their heads, but there's always people scratching their heads over my titles. Mary Roach, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Well, thanks so much, you guys. It's uh, this is my first day of interviews, so it was, uh, it was great to, uh, uh, to, to share it with you guys. Richard, you're always a champ with the recommendations. What have you got for us this week? <laughs> well, this isn't about weird animal encounters. This is about odd human encounters. And it's a show, Jim, that you recommended that I watch probably a couple of years ago. And it's Never Have I Ever. It's a wonderful, funny, light, very well acted and, and well written uh, show on Netflix about the adventures of uh, first-generation um, people from India living in the Los Angeles area. And it's, it's just great. The star is this girl who's about 16 or 17 years old and, and what happens to her at her high school and also her <laughs> relationship with her mom. It's great. 
I agree. It's a really charming new type of sitcom. Again, that's Never Have I Ever on Netflix. And we are now moving to our conversation, Jim. Yeah, so it's always a pleasure to talk with Mary Roach. When you have an opportunity to uh, to work with writers of that caliber, it's really, it's something special. And reading her book and other things she's written, it makes me think about what makes good science journalism good. One thing that makes a great magazine style or book style science report good is that the writer actually goes to the place and talks to the researchers, brings them to life as people. So there's a narrative to the story. You can combine that with accurate science reporting and you get the facts right. I think we all learn more and understand what we're learning better if it is immersed in that kind of storytelling with with interesting characters and scenes. Mary didn't talk about this in this interview, but she has in other settings the importance of fact-checkers. There are many publishers that don't employ nearly as many fact-checkers as they did in the past. Well, this is why the collapse of traditional revenue models for journalism is so heartbreaking. We really have to be much more careful and more humble when it comes to approaching uh, attempts at objectivity and uh, listening to different points of view. Yeah, humble, admitting what you don't know and not being too quick to say, oh, you know, this is absolutely true or this has been completely debunked, but rather people are still working on this. We'll give you the best, the best information we can right now, but this is not a final word on the topic. That's our final word on the topic. Thanks to Mary Roach, author of Fuzz. And as always, thank you to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Davies Content publishes this show. We are podcast consultants. Learn more at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.